While the Democratic Unionist Party said no, we were keen to move Northern Ireland forward, but there were a number of aspects of that agreement which were totally unacceptable to us. Eight political parties and two governments engaged in the multi-party talks from September 1997 through to April 1998, leading to the Good Friday Agreement. The Nationalist SDLP... People could feel that an agreement could be reached where the violence would be in the past. The Irish government... It was the singular most important policy objective of the two governments. That's what gave us the confidence to move forward progressively. And for the first time in any peace talks in the North, Sinn Féin. When Tony Blair came in almost overnight, that's what struck me almost immediately. They then started to engage. Cross-community participation came from the Alliance Party. The chairs would be at the table for everybody. Whether they chose to take them or not was another matter. And the Northern Ireland's Women Coalition. We basically sort of said, well, look, now's an opportunity to try and broaden politics. And unionism was represented by the Ulster Unionist Party. And we who were participating felt that we were under a lot of aggro from fellow unionists. By the Ulster Democratic Party. It's very difficult to achieve anything in an environment where there's violence happening. And the Progressive Unionist Party. There was discussions after discussions with that Downing Street with John Major. Get a move on. You know, call these talks, make them happen. All of whom sit down with me in this episode and put into context the events that led to them participating in these historic talks. I'm Bertie Ahern, Taoiseach of Ireland from 1997 until 2008. And this is the story of the Good Friday Agreement as I remember it. Episode 3, Finding a Way Forward. Good evening. Thousands of people have attended the funeral in Lisburn of the UDA leader John McMichael. He was killed by an IRA bomb on Tuesday. A funeral service was held at Lambeg Parish Church and hundreds of police and troops were on duty in the town. Austin Hunter now reports. The security forces mounted a major operation around Lisburn from early this morning. Hundreds of police were backed up by soldiers and checkpoints were set up on all roads leading into the town. The operation was led by an RUC assistant chief constable. The funeral was from the home of Mr McMichael's parents at Lawnmount Crescent, not far from the scene of the explosion on Tuesday night. A large number of police, some of them wearing riot helmets, stood alongside the mourners. Among the politicians present were the leaders of the two main unionist parties, the Reverend Ian Paisley and Jim Molyneux. The Ulster Unionist MP, the Reverend Martin Smith, was also there. That's the news coverage from the funeral of John McMichael in 1987. He was a leading loyalist figure who was killed by the IRA. John's son Gary led the Ulster Democratic Party, the political wing of loyalism with the Ulster Defence Association, the UDA, into the talks in 1997. Gary became one of the great supporters of making progress in the talks. He supported David Trimble remaining in the talks along with Davy Irvine in September of 1997. He continued to be a big supporter of the talks process right up to Good Friday Agreement and thereafter. He was one of those people who, in spite of the terrible things that happened to his own family, the murder of his own father, 
he continued to be a person who saw the bigger picture to bring peace to Northern Ireland. Yeah, well, I mean, the reason I got involved at all was because of my dad. Um, as 18, um, whenever he was killed. And that had happened. I mean, he was killed the same year that he, he published the Common Sense document, which was arguing for a devolved administration in Northern Ireland, an agreement between the people of Northern Ireland, Protestant and Catholic, to accept the boundaries that they were willing to live within. Um, you know, written constitution and the Bill of Rights to protect that. Um, and Derry uh, killed him within months. Um, now, I wouldn't have been, I probably would not have got involved in politics uh, otherwise. Um, and I felt that that was, there was things that were being said. There was, there was, he was, he was looking at a future beyond the conflict. And in any conflict around the world, whenever there is our resolutions, it's generally the people who've been involved in the conflict who uh, drive the solutions. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you've got that dichotomy. Um, so, you know, before the, the ceasefires, the person who was in my position, um, up until July, of um, who, who was leading the, the, the UDP at that time, uh, Ray Smallwoods, uh, was killed by the IRA. Um, and then six weeks later, it was the IRA ceasefire. So it's very difficult not to have a very kind of jaundiced view of what was going on within Republicans' uh, brains at the time. But really, what they were trying to do was take the, the head off the body in terms of uh, political unionism, or political loyalism, rather. Um, but at the same time, you know, it didn't change my view that if we were to have any any potential to actually find a settlement here, is that everybody still had to be involved. You know, at some point it had to stop. At some point the violence had to stop and there had to be something to replace it. I suppose that was the environment that we're in whenever you know, the, the peace process started to get formed. I remember, remember in 93, I think, that was probably after the Shankill bombing where, you know, where we were all scratching around trying to find a... Uh, a way forward um, you know th that after that bomb we started seeing you know where where could we find Martin McGuinness kept telling us that there was a hope of a ceasefire but we're trying to see well if there was a ceasefire where did that get to us was there a sense in in um, in loyalism that first ceasefire that 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 the IRA would actually stop. I mean, it was obviously you know you 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 the loyalists followed very quickly afterwards. But did you did you see hope at that stage? I mean, was there was there much dialogue with the with the IRA at that stage? In the ninety one um, talks that were t that were taking place, I mean, you know, it it didn't involve loyalism, it didn't involve no. republicanism, um, and. You know, I think there was a lot of hope at that time um, that, you know, if given space, that perhaps, you know, something positive will come out of that. So I think when, whenever those talks didn't didn't turn into anything, that actually, you know, was um, made, made, made things a lot more, you know, 
I think I think it uh, it was just very disappointing. Um, we we had been um, along with um, uh, David Irvine and his colleagues in the PEP. We had been you know talking to um, people right across the uh, the community, uh, and we had been um, influencing the the loyalist uh, armed groups uh, as well at the time. Uh, in order to, you know, urge, even though we weren't involved in what was going on, the urge kind of, you know, creating the space, you know, the, for, 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 uh, possibilities, because it's very difficult to achieve anything in an environment where there's violence happening. Uh, and the, the, the loyalist groups called a ceasefire during those, for a period during those talks. Um, the IRA didn't at that time. Um, and whenever the talks broke down, you know, I, I, what I kind of felt at the time was if there's anything that comes out of this in the future, then we need to have everybody involved. Because unless everyone's involved, then there's never going to be the ability to put enough of the jigsaw together in order to be able to, mm. to come out with something which is going to work. And also, it has to be in an absence of an environment where there's an absence of balance. So, Whenever the the IRA ceasefire happened in ninety four, I mean we we were expecting it, um, and you know I think that it was though at the same time it was it was at a time whenever there was a lot of suspicion, you know. So the months that followed the IRA ceasefire, we were very busy trying to understand what was behind it and what had been going on behind closed doors in order to to get there because there was a sense a fear. A concern that mm. some type of deal had been reached that um, was going to, which which was uh, going to make it very difficult for loyalism to to support what was going on. I suppose the aftermath of that realised there wasn't really anything going on, though. though probably the, the the political process was fairly stopped. But after the ceasefires, when you know the IRA ceasefire. Was end of August ninety four, and the loyalist one was October ninety four, and then was that year where it was all about um, decommissioning, and you know, were we going to have decommissioning before we have talks, and that was all lost in in, in the Washington Three uh, proposals, which went went down when the the ceasefire broke down uh, in January February ninety six. Um, in fairness to loyalists, then you, you you didn't break your ceasefire at that stage. I mean, you 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 held the line and, and stayed on ceasefire. I mean, it was the you know the uh, UDN and the UVF they had come together into a group called the Combined Loyalist Military Command, uh, and you know, it was their ceasefire. Um, you know, we were offering uh, advice, we were trying to influence, and obviously, you know, uh, myself, Davy Adams, uh, in the UDP, you know, um, Davy Irvine. Billy Hutchinson in the in the PEP, you know, we were we were um, working together and doing what we could in order to, to, to try and you know keep things as stable as possible. And you know it was it was very difficult at that time because you had you'd had that period with the ceasefires where there was a lot of optimism um, around that period, and then you know everybody was getting frustrated because the ceasefires. And that environment wasn't materialising into in the political talks, mm. so there were expectations, perhaps, that things would have moved quicker. 
but then but then take the move of actually you know um ending the ceasefire on the IRS part you know that was a, a massive concern and in terms of influence and loyalism you know loyalism um saw itself in terms of those organizations saw themselves as being there as a reaction to the IRA so it was right i suppose almost uh, a sense that it was almost inevitable that things may have just re- reverted to tape mm. um but you know, we were we were able to kind of the urge calm and to to be able to at least hold a pause and uh, to see what was going to happen next and i think there was a sense at the time that perhaps you know this was going to be a short tactical kind of move uh by republicans but it actually you know it, it lasted almost a year and a half mm. uh before the the ceasefire was reinstated and uh as that you know kind of played out then it started to become more difficult too because you know it st- started off with canary wharf uh bomb in london then there was you know other events in uh, in, in parts of europe and other parts of uh england uh, and then um it was a bit easier probably uh, at that stage but then you know we started to see the air activity back in northern ireland and that's when it really got dicey mm. um obviously um but you know we were we were urging loyalists that the the not just react to to what the IRA was doing when the IRA was doing what it was because it wasn't happy with the situation you know so why would loyalists then be saying well you know what we're going to remove any possibility of what is there in terms of the potential there was for some form of political uh, process um and i think if 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 uh if loyalists went back into that fray then it would have been so much much more difficult to, to move anything forward so that was the udp leader gary mcmichael the other party who were associated with the paramilitary groups from the uvf the ulster volunteer force was the progressive unionist party david irvine who would become a great pal of mine was the leader we're now trying to achieve something better for our children. We intend to do that. And in being brief, I say merely, let the debate begin. We're ready for it. He sadly no longer is with us, like other members of that team, such as William Plum Smith, Gusty Spence, Hugh Smith. But one of his negotiating team was Don Purvis, who took over the leadership later on, and I was delighted to catch up with her again. I remember Gusty and David in particular talking about the meetings um, with uh, Dick Spring um, throughout that period and being, um, I think, what they termed kept in the loop about how discussions were going, um, seeing drafts of the Downing Street Declaration to make sure that there was no surprises um, and no banana skins at that time because it was important that, that loyalism was kept on board and kept un- informed because those were the early foundations, if you like, for the ceasefire being called in uh, 1994. And they were tough times, really. Um, when you think about it, there were bombs still going off. My own home was bombed in, in March 1992 by the IRA, a massive thousand pound bomb in the, set, the center of, of, of Belfast. Um, there was a bomb just in the outskirts of Belfast a couple of months later, all in 1992. So the IRA were 
still heavily involved in their, their, their bombing campaign, even though these exploratory talks were ongoing. But those were, those were crucial. Those were really important when you think about, um, Albert Reynolds bringing Jerry Adams together and John Hume together. John Hume vilified. Um, for doing so, um, even from some within his own party, but they, those talks were, were crucial in laying the foundations, I think, um, that eventually led to the talks, um, happening in, in June 1996 that led to the Good Friday Agreement mm. in 1998. The Shrinkhead bombing, um, yes, um, that nearly derailed all the, all that was going on in the background. I mean, even though everything was secret, but yes. that, that particular bombing, Yes, I remember it very well. Um, the the RA um, had really been trying to to take out Johnny Adair um, for quite some time. Uh, they they viewed him as a as a maverick who was uh, just out of control, basically. Um, and there had been sort of in some infighting, I think, within the UDA at that time as well about who had supreme power and 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 what was going on. So in the IRA um, that busy Saturday, it was the twenty third of of October, uh, nineteen eighty three. Um, my birthday's on the twenty second of October, so I'd been heading up the shankle to my daddy's house and like I did every Saturday um, and we were planning on having a, a little party for the kids and, and what have you and I'd, I'd passed um, the, the fish shop about 1.30pm A state of extreme shock has descended over Belfast this evening with the news that nine people are dead and still more are critically injured one church leader has named today Bloody Saturday. There have been calls for calm and restraint, but the UFF's warning that they will retaliate and the news that a man has been shot and injured in the north of the city can only heighten tension. It is a repulsive, dastardly, no-warning bomb in which the victims are primarily women and children. It's a clear attack on women and children. Right. There's no doubt about that. Women and children shoppers. That's all the people we've been bringing out of here. Right. Children and women. The IRA were targeting the UDA headquarters, which was above. Um, and they ended up, you know, killing so many innocent people. And then the retaliation after that, they made uh, Lockin Island after that, you know, and, and others. It was just, it was horrendous time. And if anybody had said to me then, you know, loyalism, first of all, the IRA is going to call a ceasefire in a few months time and the IRA, and then loyalism a couple of months after that, I'd have told them to go away and get their head looked at. You'd have never, ever thought that there was any sign of violence then if you looked at 93 and the, and the early months of, of 1994, because I mean, the IRA killed two police officers in, in, in Lurgan just a month before the Calder ceasefire. So you'd you'd really no idea mm-hmm. um that that these were happening or that these were coming. After the Down Street, that was the fifteenth of December ninety three. Um that kind of brought that terrible year to a to a close. And then we went into into ninety four and I know Martin McGuinness kept on telling us that there were there were talks going on, there were possibilities of a, a ceasefire. And did you believe it was real at that stage? Oh, we knew we knew it would be real. If it was called, it would be real. Mm. Um because there was there was much hype around it. Um but a lot within loyalism didn't believe it was going to happen. But 
David Irvine and others within the PUP leadership were telling loyalism, this is coming. Mm. Believe me, this is coming. And you need to be ready when it does come. Mm. And I think that has been the message to loyalism, you know, since then. Yeah. No matter what happens, watch what the IRA do and and look at yourselves for what's coming next mm. because that's when the focus turns again. Mm. So the focus is always on republicanism, you know, to blink first, then loyalism is expected to follow suit. Mm. So loyalism wasn't they weren't entirely expecting that the IRA would would call their ceasefire. Yeah. Um, but were warned that it would and they needed to be prepared. That per- period of preparation, I mean, the, the, the it finally came on, on the end of August of, of, of 94. And, and then, you know, I know you were involved in that stage, I was involved at that stage. So we we, we turned our, our eyes to what, what would happen with loyalism. Um, I mean, I had great admiration with what you, Davy Irvine, and Gusty Spence, and but you might just give us a bit of, you know, how hard it was to get from that end of August to to the actual announcement in October. You know, I did have conversations with Gusty and and David, with Billy Hutchinson, with Plum Smith, with Jim McDonald about that time. And there was meeting after meeting with, um, it was the CLMC, the Combined Loyalist Military Command, if you remember, was set up at that stage to bring um, all sides of loyalism together so that they were singing of, of one hymn sheet and they come up with their six um, principles for peace, um, one of which we know included the, the principle of consent and that loyalism Loyalism's ceasefire would be based upon those, those six principles being met and, uh, and remaining in, in, in place. So I think the, the thinkers, if I could put it that way, within loyalism, um, certainly, um, Ray Smallwoods, Davy Adams, Gary McMichael, David Irvine, um, and Gusty Spence and others, they really put their heads together and said, right, okay, what, what, what do we need to do here? to get this over the line and that was what they did to get it over the line but it was more than just talking to themselves it was about bringing other people in to talk to them so um, uh, people from outside you know Reverend Roy McGee you remember who who was there around at that that stage and he was talking to people and it was it was I think loyalism you know, through David Irvine and Hugh Smith and others had, through the exploratory talks, realised that they've got to reach out more. They've got to talk to more people. They've got to get people to realise that loyalism is not Neanderthals. They're not knuckle-dragging thugs, you know, that they're, they're people with genuine concerns and worries about the future. Um, and so the PUP really were on that on that offensive, if you like, to go out and meet people, you know, how to win friends and influence people. So they drew in a wide range of individuals. So the Reverend Chris Hudson, as he is now, but then was involved in, in the peace train movement. Um, officials within the Irish government, of course, were crucial during that period for more for reassurance than, than anything else. Um, people within uh, unionism, um, others within civic society, including business leaders, trade unions leaders. So there was a wide range of people who were consulted upon and talked talked to at that stage about how important it was that loyalism follow suit and to give any um, talks that were on the horizon the greatest opportunity at success. 
But th- then I, I suppose the, the big shock, um, and the next thing that uh, PUP and loyalism had to deal with was when we got into 96, and um, we got George Mitchell yes. uh, in the chair. Uh, and then there was the realization that these talks might have to include Sinn Fein. Um, and this was the first time Sinn Fein were going to be at the, at the table. And I, I think in, it, it's, it's in fairness when we look back in a historical context that, um, it, it was yourselves in the PUP that, you know, kind of realised that that was going to happen and wasn't a gusty that yeah. said we're going to have to make that move. You, you might just bring us, because I know that was a big shock. I think people thought the talks were going to go ahead and the Sinn Féin were not going to be there. Yeah, yeah. you remember the IRA ended their ceasefire in February 1996 at Canary Wharf. And I remember talking to Gusty throughout the period when the ceasefires were called and, and until the IRA broke their ceasefire, there was discussions after discussions with that Downing Street with John Major, get a move on, you know, call these talks, make them happen. And we know that then that the, the Tory party, um, were in trouble. And of course, um, John Major was relying on, on votes from the Ulster Unionists at Westminster for his survival in government. And the Ulster Unionists were holding out for decommissioning, which was never going to happen. There'd have been no decommissioning before talks. And then what turned out that, that there were going to be parallel decommissioning alongside the talks. And then it was, of course, no, we're just going to call elections to the talks and we'll talk about decommissioning later. So, that was a, that was a tough time. The talk started in June 96 and, and, um, I was a very politically naive 30 something. And Gusty said to me the first day, right, we're all in now. Now we need the shinners in. And I was horrified and I went, are you mad? And he said, no, no, no. RSM, he called me regimental sergeant major. RSM, we need the men. I said, why do we need the men? He said, we need the men. We need to see the whites of their eyes. He said, we need to lock them into a democratic process. He says, that's when the war will be over. Now, of course, it was going to be another 18 months or so of, of wrangling through procedures in the, in the talks. Lots of filibustering going on, you know, um, blood pressures, high red faces, people getting, you know, like showing fake anger <laughs> throughout this whole period. But it wasn't until it was a change of government uh, at Westminster and and Labour was elected and Tony Blair came in that the IRA reinstated their ceasefire in July 97. Within the last few minutes, the IRA have declared there will be an unequivocal restoration of the ceasefire they called in 1994. It will start at noon tomorrow. So the DUP were out and the loyalist groups were in and the remaining Unionist Party, the Ulster Unionist Party, led by the late David Trimble. We would want to ensure, uh, from our own point of view, that this was actually going to happen. And it wasn't just a matter uh, of people accepting uh, a lot of verbiage and obfuscation. At the time of the talks, the party was dominated by figures such as Ken McGuinness, Reg Empey, the Majimsies, John Taylor, but Dermot Nesbitt, was a steady presence within the Ulster Unionist Party. He'd been involved from Sunningdale way back in 1974, all the way up to the St Andrews Agreement in 2006. Yes, there was a certain amount of relief, and then, of course, it was breached, broken again in January 96, and that created problems. And, of course, the IRA didn't say, we stop. Mm. There was a measured use 
of words then by the IRA, and therefore unionism was very cautious. We were cautious about going into the talks as well. In fact, a lot of the unionists stayed out. I remember that day we walked in uh, when David Trimble led it with David Irvine and yeah. various others. We we walked in and uh, we were in a minority of unionists going in as such uh, because the IRA had not declared the end of the war, had not declared various aspects of, of the violence that was still there and still prevalent to a certain extent. In fact, the chief constable would still say, I believe, the chief constable of the police service of Northern Ireland, that the army council of the IRA still has influence in Sinn Féin. Now, I don't know if that's valid or not. I mm. do not know. But I know there's a an influential paramilitary element that was clearly there in the 90s, mm. which put a lot of unionists off. And we who were participating felt that we were under a lot of aggro from fellow unionists. I felt it as well. Mm. And then... You know, after 91, 92, and I suppose into the ceasefires, uh, it, it felt that there was a, a a good mood around that if, if we could get the ceasefire back, and this is where I come in as T-shirt, but, you know, that if we could get the British government, John Major, in my view, was a good man and he wanted to make progress, mm-hmm. but he, he just hadn't got the numbers and, and, and you know, the unionism wasn't very helpful to him in trying mm-hmm. to deal with that. But it, that, that apart, when we come into 97 and Tony Blair, you know, set out his position, I set out my position, we got the ceasefires back up and running. What was the feeling at, at that stage? I mean, David Trimble, who you know I great regard for, but he, he came from a, a, a background that perhaps you, you wouldn't expect it, that he, he might be uh, um, open for as, as much flexibility. And of course, we, we know at that time, as the talk started, that the unionist leaders were going to pull out and um, David didn't pull out, he, he stayed in. But what was the mood within, within unionism first and within the people at this stage? Yes, I, I smile when you say David's, David's background, there was that famous fo- movie of him walking down the street in Portadown about the marches with Ian Paisley hand in hand. Garvaki Road. Garvaki Road. So there's some argument that the more right-wing background you have, the more you can be moderate because you've come from a right-wing background. I came from a very moderate background and if I said moderate things, I might be saying, oh, well, that's what he'd say anyway. Mm. You know, so so David Trimble came from a, a good solid base and he was pragmatic and we were pragmatic and we knew they weren't going into the talks, but we had to proceed and find a way forward. It was just as simple as that. We had to find a way forward. Now, we didn't engage with Sinn Féin directly. We engaged through George Mitchell. You yeah. would know the position. Yeah. And um, it was a challenging but fascinating time. I, I, I don't like to use the word enjoy, but I find it fascinating to be involved in the talks. So that was the three unionist parties participating in the talks. We heard from the nationalist parties in the last episode. So the remaining three parties around the negotiating table were the Northern Ireland Labour Party, the Women's Coalition, who we'll hear from later, and the Alliance Party. Their leader at the time was John or Lord Alderdice. John Alderdice was a key figure in the talks. The Alliance Party had been the middle road party all along. 
they were building a base but from a very slow percentage um, but Lord Onderdice was a formidable person he articulated what was needed to bring a peaceful Northern Ireland he managed to be able to give both sides of the argument and to be able to give the views of what was on the minds of both nationalist parties and particularly unionist parties well, it's a, a pleasure to to do this with you and to reflect back. And it's a little bit salutary that we're becoming part of the history lessons in schools. <laughs> it is. <laughs> John Alderdice became a key figure. He became the speaker of Stormont when the institutions were up and running. And I talked to him over Zoom. As you know, uh, I became Alliance leader uh, in the later part of the 1980s. And uh, the first question for me, and indeed the reason why I came into political life, was to see if we could find a different way of understanding the problems that would bring the violence to an end. It wasn't a question of everybody agreeing with each other. <laughs> There's nowhere in politics anywhere in the world that everybody agrees with each other. But we have to find ways of disagreeing with each other without doing each other harm, and in particular, of course, without killing each other. And that was a very difficult time, the late 1980s. We had the Inniskillen bombing. There were actually a whole series of atrocities at that time. And of course, that polarised opinion. And we we had to work very hard to try to get to a point where people would begin to engage with each other at all. Even though we got some talks underway, we didn't reach agreements. Um, now, sometimes people think that that means that those talks were, were just a failure, that we tried and it just didn't work out. But actually, if you look at what happened much later and the agreements that we did reach, the, the foundations of those agreements were there at a much earlier stage. The kind of conversation, even some of the language that was used, and of course, the models that were developed, many of those were based on agreements there had already been. In fact, some people uh, felt that they were uh, based on, on on agreements right away back to the early 1970s. Seamus Mallon famously described the Good Friday Agreement as Sunningdale for slow learners. But of course, it's not just about having models. It's not just about institutions. It's about the relationships between people and communities of people. And that was the thing that was in difficulties at that time. It was the relationships were in, in tatters. Uh, many of the people didn't want to meet with each other at all. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's so true, um, John. It, it was trying to people to get to know each other, people beginning to talk to each other. And um, even if they didn't quite understand each other, at least it, mm. it, 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 it was m- moving on. I suppose, John, in... 93 the year before the 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 uh the ceasefires it, that was a particularly bad year there were horrendous uh, acts of, of of terror was there much hope or was it all doom and gloom and is looking back that that's almost 30 years now certainly things were pretty gloomy at that time i i remember in the in the in the set of talks uh, that involved the uh, Ulster Unionists, the Democratic Unionists, the Alliance Party and, and the SDLP and indeed the British and Irish governments before Sinn Féin got involved and so on, that, that earlier set of talks. We used to, from time to time, uh, the four Northern Ireland leaders used to go away and meet together on their own without any advisors or civil servants or without British or Irish governments or whatever, particularly if we got a bit stuck and felt we weren't getting anywhere. And 
what would happen is I would talk to Jim Molyneux. I'd say, we, we, we need to talk with each other. Would you talk to Ian? And I'll talk to John. And we'll try to see if we can get the four of us together. And that's what happened. We got together. And I very well remember a particular meeting in, in Stormont, in Parliament Buildings. And uh, we, we were talking about this. And John said, you know, we're not getting anywhere with all of this. And I'm going to need to talk to, to Sinn Féin and the IRA. And I looked around at Jim Molyneux and his face just went completely white. And he said, well, that's that's it then. There's no hope. And it, he didn't say it in an angry kind of way. He he said it because he felt that not just the, now the external environment, but now if John was saying he was going to go and talk to Republicans, then the unionists felt, first of all, it was difficult for them to continue talking with John. And secondly, that there was nothing that could be conceived of that Republicans on the one hand could sign up for that was going to be acceptable on the other hand to unionists. And I remember going home from that meeting really quite down because although I was very committed to the process and to trying to get somewhere, uh, it really was quite depressing. The external environment wasn't good. And here, even though we were meeting together, even though four of us and our parties and the two governments were engaging with each other, you know, it really didn't seem that there was very much hope. Um, and and I, 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 I came back, actually, to, to look at it and thought, you know, I knew John very well. I knew him very well at that, at, at that time. And I thought, if John has decided this, then he's going to go ahead with it. You know, he's, he's very determined and, and he doesn't say these things without having thought about them. And of course, if John goes that direction uh, and, and we don't continue the relationship, then there's no hope of power sharing. Without John, there's no power sharing. And uh, so I thought, well, we have to test his idea to destruction. And of course, as you know, and as our listeners will know, in fact, that prefigured a complete change of analysis and of process. Instead of bringing together what would have been thought of as a kind of relatively moderate constitutional centre uh, and marginalising people on the extremes, uh, we brought together the people right across, as far as we possibly could. Not everybody was prepared to come to the table, but as far as we possibly could, we would bring everybody together and at least the, the, the chairs would be at the table for everybody, whether they chose to take them or not was, was another matter. And now, as you look back at it and realise that you can have a political process without the people in the extremes, the people who are using violence, but you can't have a peace process without somebody talking to the people who are using the violence and persuading them to give it up. And that seems entirely obvious to you and me now. But it didn't seem at all obvious in those days. It, there were all sorts of questions about it, even about the morality of engaging with people. You were giving them a platform. Uh, you were accepting the mandate of the gun and the bomb. And it, it, it took a lot of courage for John to do what he did. And it, it took a bit of imagination for some of the rest of us to, to try to follow along that line. I think as a community, as communities, we, we got to the abyss. And we looked over and we thought, oh, my goodness me, this what's what is what is going to happen if we continue along this line is just uh, too awful to contemplate. We have to find another way. Things changed fairly dramatically as we went into 94, John, and mm. we had the two ceasefires. And, you know, you, you were the centre ground trying to find ways always of accommodating difference and finding ways forward and. Did, did, did you feel that change on the ground in, in Northern Ireland? It, it seemed it seemed almost too much to hope for. And and the, although there were straws in the wind, you know, straws aren't terribly robust. Mm. And, and the experience of, of frustration and breakdown and not reaching agreements, that, that seemed a great deal more robust. But I remember in the run-up to that period, I, I was in the States, uh, as as was Jerry Adams and, and indeed John. We'd gone out on the invitation of uh, Irish-Americans 
And I remember having one conversation on television, actually, at the time, uh, where both Jerry Adams and myself were being interviewed. And I made clear that the thing that was stopping me leading my party into direct engagement with Sinn Féin was the violence. Uh, and that if it was possible to stop the violence, we were absolutely prepared to engage. And, and you know, I think Jerry didn't really believe me at the time. I, I think he thought that I was just putting up some kind of obstacle because I thought there was never going to be any ceasefire or cessation or possibility of talking. But that wasn't true. I very, very much wanted to move ahead, but I also knew the limits of what I could do as the leader of my party and to some extent what I could do with my own sense and, and conviction about things. Of course, when the ceasefire came, uh, I immediately got my office to get in touch with his office. And then shortly afterwards, there was the Loyalist ceasefire. And again, I, I got my office to get in touch and to say, right, let's 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 meet. And we met at, uh, in Belfast City Hall. I was a Belfast City Councillor at the time. And we met there. And it was a private meeting in the sense that he and I were meeting with each other in a room and nobody else there. But it wasn't a secret meeting. It was perfectly public that we were having this meeting. I thought it was important that it was public. Um, and that, that people knew that we were meeting. But of course, the conversations themselves needed to, to stay uh, confidential. It, there had been indications of a preparedness to make some kind of move. Even in Belfast City Council itself, uh, I well remember um, a particular uh, council meeting. Uh, and as you will know, Alex Maskey uh, was the chief whip of Sinn Féin at, at that time. Sammy Wilson was very much involved on the, on the DUP side. And we were having a discussion, having a debate, about whether or not Belfast City Council would spend a very large amount of money in building a concert hall and conference centre. There's a lot of debate. It was the biggest project that they'd undertaken for a long time. And so we were having this debate. Uh, Alex Maskey indicated that Sinn Féin was going to be prepared to support this. The DUP were somewhat sceptical of it. Sammy Wilson described his concert hall and conference centre as the, the biggest band hall in Belfast, he said. <laughs> and, and whenever Alex indicated that, you know, they were positive about this, Sammy looked over at him and he said, does that mean you're not going to bomb it then? <laughs> and Alex didn't say yes or no. He just kind of, hmm. And that was really the first kind of indication that, that maybe things were changing, that maybe instead of an economic war, and what the Republican movement was was looking to was the building of an economy that could perhaps be a shared economy. But, you know, as I say, he didn't say yes, he didn't say no, he didn't make any big statement. But when you tried to read between the lines, you thought, well, you know, maybe there's some kind of possibility. I mentioned the Northern Ireland Labour Party. They were always supportive always came to the meetings in Dublin. I very much appreciated uh, their role that they played and the way that they were supportive of the process and were, were prepared to speak for the good work that was going on by all sides and to be supportive of it. And of course, finally, in terms of the parties that played a really crucial role in the whole thing was the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. I caught up with two of these terrific women, Avalik and Murray and the leader, Monica McWilliams. Well, the thing about the Women's Coalition is really sort of brought together um, a range of experiences that have been going on right through the Troubles. So it brought together women that have been active in the trade union movement, uh, so had experience of negotiation, people like May Blood, Eileen Weir, people like that. Um, it also brought together people that were community activists that have been working in those communities that have been on the sort of the, the cutting edge, if you like, of the impact of the violence. Um, and then the women's movement itself, where it had been obviously 
sort of advocating for changes in legislation around domestic violence and so forth. So it actually brought a lot of skills together. And obviously also people that have been involved in the civil rights movement going back even further. Periodically, whenever there were sort of opportunities to advocate and to look for political change, the people involved that became involved in the Women's Coalition, like Brona Hines and that, would have would have actually been at the forefront of that. So whenever we obviously saw the the the, the, the ceasefires um, and the, the the potential opening up of politics, we 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 basically sort of said, well, look, now's an opportunity to try and broaden politics because one of the things I think we found was violence narrows politics, and also because everything was so focused on the constitutional question, and there were huge economic and social and rights issues that had just gone by the board, basically. So there had been a conference. Back even before this, the coalition in 1995, the summer of 95, that uh, that Monica McWilliams was involved in organising, and that brought together a, a, a large number of women, and we sort of said, okay, so what are our options? We can form like a women's political association, like there was in the Republic of Ireland, which was cross party, bringing women together on women's issues. We can get women to join the existing parties and try and, and lobby within those. Or there is the opportunity perhaps to, to do something ourselves. And then we sort of parked it. And what and what then was changed the situation for us was when we saw the electoral system that was being put in place uh, for the for the, the, the 1996 elections. Um and a number of us, I mean, I had done political science in UCD uh, with Tom Garvin. So I sort of, you know, had a look at the electoral systems and said, hmm, uh, actually, you don't need too many votes to be one of the top 10 parties. So we, we, we sort of treated a bit of a joke at first, you know, uh, and we, we had gone through sort of contacting the parties with our list of demands and nobody bothered to come back to us. And we said, OK, we actually may just... Uh, set up our own party. And the other thing happened was the British government had actually published the list of parties that were going to fight the election. And we sort of said the cheek of them. Um, you know, so we, we rang uh, one morning and said, um, and we actually got Brona to ring because she sounded quite magisterial. You know. So we rang and sort of said, um, and what about uh, if another party wants to stand? And the poor old civil service, uh, servant at the end sort of said, uh, right, she said, uh, I'll have to talk to people and come back to you. So he did. And then he came back on the one day and he said, what, what's the name of this party? So Brona said, uh, I'll have to talk to people and get back to you. So she rang round and we said, OK, so we'll keep the space open. And we thought, so Women's Coalition. And we deliberately didn't want to call it a party. Mm. We want to broaden it to a coalition. So now we can't call it Women's Coalition because the headlines will be WC. So we said we'll call it Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. So we did that. And then, of course, panicked. So we, we, we better tell the women. And I was then director of the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland. So we had all the list of the women's groups. So sent out a note to everybody that we could think of. Come along to the, it was the Ulster People's College for a meeting. We had this sort of mass meeting. Said, look, we've, we've held a space. Now, do you want us to go ahead? Now, this was six weeks before the election. Do you want us to go ahead with this or not? And the first meeting, there was hemming and hawing. And, uh, and I remember Bernadette McGillisky being there and Bernadette saying, look, she says, I'm not joining you. She says, but you should, you should go ahead, you know. And somebody else was saying, no, no, I'm a member of Sinn Féin or I'm a member of the official unions party. No, we want to, our own parties, whatever. So, so we had a second meeting and it was decided to, to go ahead. We looked at the electoral system and the 
and, and worked out that we needed as many women to run as possible in order to garner the votes, you know, the, to, to get, get the collective vote. Yeah. yeah. So we reckoned, you know, look, and, and we got in Sydney Elliott from Queen's University, who was, you know, did all the, the, the statistics. And he sort of said, well, he said, you know, looking at you know, the votes that some of these established parties got, they didn't get very many, you know. So we had this thing about, you know, 100 votes for 100 women or whatever. Mm. And and then May Blood said, May, May said, right, OK. Well, she says, you know, we'll put an ad in the paper. And, and we worked out by this stage our three principles of human rights, inclusion and equality. And we'll say, a women interested in politics that will sign up to, you know, human rights, equality and, uh, and inclusion, contact us. So we got, at the end of the day, something like 80 women, 79, 80 women to stand. And now, now to be quite honest, I mean, some of the women said to us, we'll stand, but promise we won't get elected, you know, because... You know, <laughs> um, but we, we did, and we sort of came in then as, as, as the Ninth Party. Uh, and, we, and we very deliberately, actually it was great fun, we very deliberately said, what... what we, we need to carve out a position for ourselves quickly. So what can we do that would be different? You know, so, I mean, I think we, we, we launched our manifesto with a picnic in the park or something like that. You know, we'd, well, we used open-top buses to go around and to, to, to make it much more that this is not a, a standard political party. This is something different. And then the line we took um, was, look, everybody else is fixated on the border. There's all these other issues, so we're not. I talk about being involved in civil rights, and by the 70s, the feminism had swept across the Atlantic and women's rights was starting. So I would say we had a pre-existing network already in place. So when politicians said, where did these women come from? It was as if we'd fallen out of the sky. Well, in fact, we'd been together for 25 years before it, working in, in local communities, grassroots communities. It was a bottom-up movement. And often it's civil society actors who eventually do the peace building but are not invited to the table. And so when the peace talks were declared, in fact, it was Baroness uh, Mayhew, Lady Mayhew and Baroness Denton, two Conservative Party women, after the Downing Street Declaration, they said, we'd love to hear from women about their responses, because mostly male voices that you hear. And so we were ready when the peace talks were declared. Initially, the British government um, said that there would be um, 10 parties at the table, because they wanted the small armed group parties affiliated to the loyalist parties in particular at the table. And so the process was designed very creatively. Uh, that there would be 10 parties and I remember sitting down with Avla Murray saying well this was a conclusion of our previous event and now we're being called on and maybe we should roll up our sleeves and do something and that was the beauty of being in the coalition and it challenged me because in Northern Ireland you live in a very segregated separated um, areas and people didn't really know that many people from the opposite side women did uh, because domestic violence doesn't distinguish between class or religion. And so we did know each other, but not to the extent that we really knew each other's politics. And that's the test of any peace talks, is to really speak to the other side. Of course, crucial to all of this was the role of the British government too. Tony Blair and I started meeting in 95-96 period, when we were both in opposition in our countries. We felt that if we were elected, we should give one big push 
And of course, this became possible when Tony won in a landslide victory in May of 1997. At 3.27 this morning, Mr Major accepted he'd been comprehensively defeated and congratulated Tony Blair on his success. We always said that if we had the courage to change, then we could do it, and we did it. His chief of staff was Jonathan Powell, a person that I worked with for the better part of 10 years in moving the process forward. It's interesting because Tony Blair came into a position as leader of the Labour Party and immediately changed the policy on Northern Ireland. He brought in Mo Molan to be the Shadow Northern Ireland Secretary and said we would support John Major whatever he was doing in the peace process. And we did so. We supported him even when we thought he was doing the wrong thing because we thought... We didn't know all that was going on behind the scenes. And that started the bipartisan approach in the UK, which I have to say the Tories didn't always stick to, but really helped a lot to have um, people not using it too much for politics uh, as we went through the peace process. And as Tony started thinking about this, and it's interesting how Tony got committed to working on Northern Ireland, because it's not an obvious thing as a British prime minister coming in to make Northern Ireland a big issue. You know, most prime ministers run a mile from it. Uh, but I think he he was committed to it partly out of his religious uh, beliefs and background, and partly because he had family. He uh, used to spend the summers with his uh, uh, Protestant uh, orange woman uh, gra- grandmother uh, in Donegal. So he had a connection uh, with Ireland uh, and the North. Then in opposition, we started um, trying to think through what we would do in government. We had a series of meetings here with people like John Chilcott, the permanent secretary, Uh, from the Northern Ireland office. And crucially, I think Tony met with you. And I think that relationship that Tony built with you, Bertie, was really the underpinning of the whole peace process. In the past, relationships between Britain and Ireland have been quite rocky. And then under John Major, they got better, but there was still this lack of trust. And then the two of you, I think, was absolutely crucial that you could work together almost seamlessly. You wouldn't know if it was an Irish person, Irish minister or Irish official saying something or a British one. And I think that's really why it worked during that period. And then... I suppose in in ninety seven you had the, that that enormous victory and you know you you, you ran such a brilliant camp, campaign through it and then Tony headed almost straight to Belfast to make a, a very significant speech and to get things moving and really what happened in just that summer of ninety ninety seven was Tony laying down the ground rules uh, from his perspective my role was to try and get Sinn Fein uh, to convince the IRA to restore the ceasefire that had been broken down since since early 96. Uh, and then the trick was how we were going to get the talk started. And that wasn't easy. And you were centre stage in those efforts, uh, Jonathan. Yes, I mean, that was the uh, it was a crucial phase that when Tony came in uh, in 97 with this big majority, and he decided to use his political capital from that uh, on Northern Ireland. It was sort of slightly surprising to most people. The first thing he wanted to do was to try and reassure unionists because the unionists were worried that uh, Labour was going to go back to the um, greener days of the past and be forcing them into a united Ireland. And they were suspicious about that. Uh, and he made this speech and in it he said uh, he didn't expect to see a united Ireland in his lifetime. I remember David Trimble thought that he'd put that in and extemporised it, but he hadn't. He'd, he'd actually thought that through and cleared it with people before he said it. And it was a way of just trying to make this fear of United Ireland not so omnipresent for the, for the unionist community. So having done that, um, what we wanted to then try and do is to get uh, Sinn Féin back into the process, because, of course, the whole thing had collapsed under John Major and the war had started again. 
And our analysis was that that was in part because John Major had been unable to bring Sinn Féin into the process, the peace process. They'd uh, gone into ceasefire, uh, and then he put them into this sort of waiting room. And it was sort of indefinite. He could never quite bring them out of the waiting room into the talks, partly because of his political weakness that, you know, he had he had no majority in the Commons and he found it very difficult to do anything very much uh, on these issues. Uh, and partly because he'd made decommissioning into an issue, the decommissioning of weapons. And I understand why he did that. It was because the IRA didn't say it was a permanent ceasefire and he didn't want to negotiate under the threat of violence. And he boxed himself by this precondition uh, into a very, very difficult situation. Anyway, the lesson we drew was you have to move fast on this. If we could get Sinn Féin back into ceasefire, uh, if we could get them into the talks and if we could keep the unionists in the talks, we'd set a really tight deadline of trying to get this done within one year, not let it drag on for years and years and years, which we thought was one of the things that undermined the previous peace process. So having tried to reassure the unionists, we were then shocked when uh, the IRA killed two policemen uh, while we were at a European summit, uh, really taken aback by that. And we sent a message through the Irish government to uh, Sinn Féin and the IRA saying, if you carry on doing this, then you can forget about ever being included in talks. And we intend to be in power for quite a long time. And we got a message back saying, look, it was a mistake. We, it wasn't meant to happen and so on and so forth. Uh, and then we got into the ceasefire. Uh, we then had to persuade the unionists to stay in the talks. And of course, Ian Paisley walked out. But we, uh, uh, Tony worked very hard on David Trimble and his colleagues. We'd have lots and lots of meetings in Downing Street. Again, it's very unusual for a prime minister to spend so much time on one issue, and particularly an issue like this. But he would sit for long periods of time talking to the unionists about how important it was to test Sinn Féin, to see if they were serious or not. And the, the phrase we kept using was the trains leaving the station. We have to make a, find a way of um, uh, testing them to see if they're serious about making peace. So that was the, the, the game plan for that, that um, first year, to try and get the talks process going, to get Sinn Féin in, to keep the, the, uh, the unionists in, and then see if we could really expedite it and get to a solution within that one year. On the next episode of As I Remember It, I talked to Tony Blair about the role he played in the Good Friday Agreement. You know, one of the things that Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness used to say to me during the course of this, they'd say, look, if you end up doing a bad job for the Labour Party and they, you know, they're just going to be angry at you. You know, if we end up doing what our guys consider a bad job, we're dead. As I remember it, it's a News Talk original podcast. The executive producer is Mark Simpson. The producers, Jess Kelly and Sandra Honan. Sound mixing, Lachlan Hart. Archive audio used in this episode was from RTE, BBC and ITN. Go to newstalk.com forward slash Good Friday Agreement for bonus material, including full interviews, videos, a timeline of the peace process and a glossary of who's who in the Good Friday Agreement. <laughs>